So at my point right now, I am talking to, or my team, I'm not talking to anybody. My team is talking to somewhere in the order of, I don't know, three or 400 people a day. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. Today, we have on Paul David Thompson, a real estate investor who is a master at generating leads. But before we get into that, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. Uh, Well, we just fresh off this big, long holiday weekend, which was always nice. I even took off Friday to extend it out a little extra, the old four-day weekend, which just makes that next day at work, I guess, all the much harder. But it was a good time. We On Friday, we got the paddle boards out. We've always wanted to paddle down to this island, but we just never have time quite to get out that far. So Friday, we took advantage of the day off and uh, not a lot of crowds out there. So we paddled out to this island, which was really cool. Saturday was this like, it would take me an hour to explain, but we ended up getting to furnish our entire new house basically with furniture for including like a nice 65 inch TV for like 3000 bucks. And that also included a free month of a storage unit. This all started out by me borrowing a truck and a U-Haul trailer to go get a couch. And it just snowballed positively from there. Met a nice guy who probably could give me a place to stay in New Hampshire uh, if I'm ever back up your way, Cody. So that was a, that's a whole story on itself. And then we kind of finished the weekend out at a friend's lake house. So we just, again, got out, got on the paddle boards, did a little fishing and just kind of hanging out. How about you, Cody? Well, that's some exciting stuff. I have some not so good news. I had some fun news. It was just a wild weekend. So I flew down to Dallas, Texas on Thursday morning. And literally that morning, for those of you who are in the Northeast, we had just a pretty crazy hurricane. We got like, I don't even know how many inches of water in a certain number of hours, but it was record setting for this year. Like just the sheer volume of water that was coming down. And anyone who's listening who was affected, like definitely heart goes out to you. It could have been way worse in my units. But two of my units, one of them, just the sump pump broke and the whole basement flooded. It had like a foot and a half of water in it. One of the boilers ended up breaking. And for those of you who know home repair, not a cheap fix. One of the other ones, the sump pump started to get overwhelmed. And then it was like, I guess, incorrectly hooked up from the past owner. Basically, it was like pumping sewage back through the main line and ended up getting sewage. We literally just had an episode with Van like a couple of weeks ago talking about this, this nightmare of a thing that happened to him. And it happened to me at a smaller scale, albeit, but there was sewage all in the tenant's basement. So not a fun landlord weekend, but, you know, getting back to the reason I was in Dallas and, you know, I'm fielding phone calls at 6 a.m. and, you know, doing this kind of long distance property management, which is a good thing, I guess, to know that I could do this from anywhere in the country. But I went down there to run a half marathon and, you know, I was training a bit and I thought it was going to be really fun. And I will tell you, I'm never running a marathon in the summer in Texas (laughs) ever again. You cannot train your body if you're training in Massachusetts, even on the hottest days to be ready for that type of heat. It was just like so brutal, so overwhelming. And my body was just like ready to shut down. But I did finish. And I finished close to the time I wanted to get, not quite there because my body was just shutting down from heat exhaustion almost. But yeah, man, it was a crazy weekend. We can definitely, uh, maybe our next solo episode, we'll get into that story of you with the U-Haul. We can talk a little bit more about all the mishaps of (laughs) the flood and all that good stuff, all the fun stuff that comes with the crazy lads we're living. But Justin, I think that's enough about our mishaps, triumphs, and everything in between. Let's take a quick moment for our partner. 
Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called Personal Capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans, these can be 401ks, these can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards. They're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. So as we quickly mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the guest today we have on is Paul David Thompson. This is someone who I met and Justin, I think we both met back in 2018, really quiet guy sitting in the corner of the room. And it wasn't until the last day of Camp Fi when I found out that this guy was just a real estate extraordinaire. He had like 30 properties. He had done all these different types of deals. And in this episode, Justin and I get to dig in, talk about his systems for finding leads. He has three different sourcing methods where at this point, he has a whole team under him and he's sending out a thousand leads, a thousand offers a week on properties. Of course, he's not hitting on them all, but it's just amazing to see this thing that he's built out. He talks about building systems. He talks about his money mindset and how he thinks about real estate and financial independence and so much more. And if you enjoyed this episode as much as we did, and you want to link out to Paul's podcast, you can do all of that at thefyshow.com slash Paul. That's thefyshow.com slash P-A-U-L. Take it away, Paul. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I would not say that I grew up in a, an environment where investing was even really talked about at, at all. For me, getting a job that actually paid me a decent salary was a way for me to like go up the socioeconomic ladder. So, I mean, I, to me, I arrived when I got a job was in, in 2000 was paying me $45,000 a year. I mean, I was, I, I made it because I, I had gotten out of, I wouldn't say abject poverty, but I, I was in an environment where we, we, I never went hungry, but we kind of lived in a, in a situation where there was a scarcity mindset and I kind of worked my way into a job. And after I spent 15 years in the corporate world, kind of climbing the ladder in the, in the corporate world, I realized my ladder was up against the wrong wall. And there were aspects of the job that were interesting, but it was an unfulfilling experience for me overall. And so I just kind of reflected on what else could I do to earn income and create a, and maintain my current lifestyle without having to exchange my time for money. And the fundamental thing for me was I wanted to never have to ask permission to go on vacation again. I didn't want to ask a boss to spend time with my family. I I flipped the script and now I ask my wife and my family permission to go and do something fun that is, doesn't involve them. So I'm going to go do a work conference. I'm going to go to FinCon. I'm going to go do this. I asked permission with my family, but so I just kind of flipped the script and that priority set everything in, in line for me. Well, what can I do to do that? And what, what's available out there to make that possible, to change that 
make, make that a reality. And I happened to stumble into real estate as just an experiment to see if it's something I even liked. And once I started doing it, I got hooked as many people do. You kind of develop this thrill of the hunt. Like you're, you're looking for a deal and I know Justin likes to find deals, right? And there's a thrill to it. And I have found that is something that I, I thoroughly enjoy. And now I'm getting to the point to where I'm actually getting, uh, I'm becoming a true entrepreneur where I'm actually building teams and I'm building processes. And I'm more of a business, a real estate entrepreneur than I am truly a real estate investor. I just happen to invest in real estate in my business. So we love digging into people's backstory. And for the listeners who've never heard you before, they don't know anything about you, like digging into that corporate part. What kind of job were you going into? What led you to that? Like, what were your interests? And then kind of where did you, where'd you top out at in that journey? So I went to school in, in Texas and I was better than the, than the average bear at math and science. So I did pretty well in math and science. And I thought, well, I know a good marketable career would be engineering. Let's get an engineering degree. So I went to the University of Arkansas and got a engineering degree and came out of that with a marketable degree. And I got a job in Little Rock, Arkansas, which is where I still am. And I got a job being a computer guy, an IT guy. And that developed into a couple other lateral moves into a wireless company. And then I moved to a telecommunications company. And in the telecommunications company that I spent most of the time at, I kind of became a, a manager, then I became a director, and I had a lot of reports, and I was managing big, I don't know exactly the, the number, but I think it's like a $50 million budget. I had lots of employees. And, you know, so I was kind of moving up that, that, that ladder, and I was working for a Fortune 500 company. And it was, there were good aspects about that. And I guess I topped out at director, and I made the mistake or the brilliant move, I'm not sure which, <laughs> of really designing myself out of a job because I was learning how to become a better manager. And as a manager, one of the best things you can do is remove yourself from being a linchpin, right? Is you want to make your employees successful and your job as a manager or director is to make everybody else's jobs easier. And I got to the point to where I wasn't that busy at work anymore. Like I had it all, I had a smooth operating machine here. And then invariably corporate politics is crazy. You can do nothing wrong. And someone just comes in and takes over and a new VP is assigned. They don't know you from Adam and you're suddenly irrelevant. And it's just, it's like this cold equation comes through and says, uh, Paul, you, you live in Arkansas and I like this guy in, in South Carolina. So we're going to keep him and, we're, and, and you're laid off. So I know that you obviously didn't find like the fulfillment. You said you had your ladder up against the wrong wall, but this just sounds like you got so many tangible skills out of that job that now you're getting to use on your own. So like it wasn't all for naught. That's right. And there is always something you're learning from your experiences. You're, you're taking and collecting a set of, of experiences and skill sets that you can apply in the future. So would I do anything differently? I, I don't really know because I don't know what I wouldn't have learned and what I wouldn't have applied. And a lot of people ask me, like, how did you get so many properties so, so soon? And when I, when I first started buying property and one of the distinctions between me and maybe somebody that you may interview is I was 37 when I bought my first real estate property. I had a decent net worth. I had a high income. I was, I had a good credit. I was very bankable. So going and buying a $50,000 property wasn't that scary for me. I mean, it, it wasn't like it was easy, but it wasn't like I was 22 years old and I was buying a $150,000 property for the first time ever. You know, I, I had some business experience. I had some business acumen and it made it just simpler once I decided that was something I wanted to do. 
So you're 37 years old at this point when you buy this first property. Who was the one or maybe what blog or what resource was shaking that ladder? The one that you'd been climbing so steadily for so many years. Was it, did you hear someone on a podcast? Did you read a blog post? Did you search how to quit my job on the internet? It's always interesting kind of hearing how people stumble at Defy. So it's interesting. I, I wouldn't even characterize myself as a classic financial independence type person because I I really am an entrepreneur at, at heart. And but I didn't know that going into it. I liked building like my little business unit and I like building my business now. And yeah, I guess I am financially independent, but I can't imagine not doing anything else and just sitting around just just like the idea of optimizing and knowing what my burn rate is and having my savings rate and just like staying underneath that and just like not doing anything has zero interest to me. What is interesting to me is building something, is a, building a community, is building a hard money lending business. It's buying more properties, figuring out how to expand what I do in Little Rock into other markets, which is something I'm doing now. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm completely, I like finding myself uncomfortable and then figuring out how to expand beyond that. And as far as like the trigger for me is it wasn't necessarily a resource. I definitely read kind of the classic ones that most people read, JL Collins and, you know, the, you know, Mission Money Mustache. They gave me concepts, right? But what really triggered me was finding a mentor in real estate. And I asked him, I said, hey, you know, I, I want to learn about real estate. It's something I think I'm interested in. I'll exchange my time for money. I'll do whatever I can to help you. And he said, I'll send you some stuff to do. Like I'll give you some books to read, but what, when you're ready, I want you to go to these conferences that are by these, these guys have been doing it for 30, 40 years. And they have these conferences that have terrible marketing and they have no upsell on the back end. They're just these classic guys from the sixties and seventies when they started doing this business and they just talk real estate. And I learned the, the mechanics of real estate and the creativity that real estate offers from these seasoned vets that have been doing it since the sixties and seventies. I know a lot of people come on, we're talking about finding resources, whether it be contract work or just getting that kind of knowledge like you're talking about. They talk about those local realtor groups that you should join. And if I remember right, like you were heavily involved in one of those. I was. So what they refer to those as RIAs, Real Estate Investment Associations. Also, also this, this concept of like local meetups or just like investing clubs. And you have to know what you're getting into when you're going to a local real estate investing association. They're called RIAs. And most of them are for-profit organizations that are selling content and they're, they could be helping people, don't be wrong. And they're, they're like, I think they've provided net good to the, to the industry, but they are a content creation sales machine and they're having traveling salespeople, traveling real estate gurus sell their courses. And some of them are very good courses. Some of them are complete crap. And you know, you have to decide which one is which when you go and do this thing. That doesn't mean there's still not value there, right? So it's the people who are new. There are some seasoned guys there, and there are some people who've just been in and around the business that you want to find. I think that's good to go to, but you also want to find the quiet little coffee shop meeting that no one talks about. Those are existing. If you can't find one, go and make your own. So that's what I did is I went to meetup.com and said, hey, I'm going to a coffee shop every Sunday morning. I'm going to be out here at, um, I think it was at 830, but this is pre-COVID. And I hosted a, a coffee shop. And come some people I uh, would, would come, talk shop for a couple hours. Someone would go to church and someone would just stay there and we would just talk all day. And where did you mostly source these people? Like, how do you know, one, they were quality people that knew what they were doing? You know, just on meetup.com, 
that you already have an existing network there. I feel like that's kind of like going on Craigslist and hoping you get a good contractor. Yeah, I think what you put out is what you get, right? So if I was talking about how to slander people, if I was talking about how to get one over on a motivated seller, I would attract a different kind of crowd. I, I was there learning and applying what I had learned from these conferences I went to. I think I probably went to like 20 or 30 real estate conferences in the first year or two. So there's this kind of FI and financial independence kind of circuit you can go to. Well, there's also naturally a real estate circuit you can go to. So I went down the real estate circuit first. And only later when I became kind of established as a real estate investor, did I then go back to the kind of the financial independence circuit and kind of, you know, just because I wanted to meet interesting people. I really didn't have like a business objective when it, when it came to the, the five space. But when it came to real estate, I did. And I very specifically went and got what I feel, feel like a graduate level education in how to do real estate. I went and did the experiments. I did the actual work in my market. And then I took that and shared what I knew to the market. That's one thing I've just found about me. I, when I, when I learn something, I cannot help but share it. That is how I internalize and that's how I test. And that's just kind of, if you were to find my zone of genius, define it, it is, I, I, I take information and I share it. That's just, that I can't help but teach, but I didn't want to do it in a way where I was like trying to be in the front, front of the room and like saying I knew everything. I just wanted to like share what I'd learned and here's some, some principles and then maybe you guys can learn. And when you do that kind of thing and you just are looking to provide value, you tend to attract good people to these local meetups. A lot of people, when they're getting into some kind of business that even if it's successful, they have trouble scaling because they can't let go, right? Like they want to be have complete control over everything. They have trouble trusting other people and that's their wall. They just, they can't scale because they won't let go of things. There's only one of you, but it sounds like you love building out the teams. You love like making things kind of autonomous so you can go on to the next thing. At what point in this journey did you kind of turn that corner where it wasn't just you going out looking for houses, but you started to kind of build that team? Pretty early on because I was working a full-time job at first. So by just definition, by getting things done, I had to find help. So I hired VAs pretty soon into my journey. So once I learned real estate, I realized that I needed to learn how to find and acquire help that was very practical and very inexpensive and virtual assistance certainly was a new, wasn't a new idea in 2015 or 2017, but it was still fairly new in the scheme of things. And I was going out and using just upwork.com and finding somebody and saying, okay, here's a script, go make some calls. Here is a, here's how to go scrape data off of Zillow and just make offers. And I would, I would have them run through a calculator and I would have at one point I was still working a full-time job. I had virtual assistants making 40 offers a week. To, yeah, I mean, we were just making offers because in the real estate business and probably any kind of business that there's sales involved, your, your measure of success is how many offers you make. And I, and I have kind of reframed that in my personal business. It's how many offers to help. So any sort of service that you're in or business that you're in where you're providing a service, a good or service, you're in sales and you're in marketing and it's your, it's your cross section of the market and how many times you're making an offer to help is your measure of success. And I, I kind of figured that out pretty early. And that is the measure I still do today is my, my sales guys that I get on a call with every day. I ask them, how many offers did you make? And they have to fill out a report every day that they kind of cuss me about. Uh, I'm filling out this report again. And I like, that's our brick, our, our brick to success. The way we build our empire is brick by brick. And you have to make an offer for us to be successful. That is the single measure of success. 
I love that strategy. You were throwing hundreds of darts at the wall every month, and you've definitely you've got to hit some bullseyes if you're throwing that many darts. But I'm just thinking for myself, I'd be so nervous that I would have someone, you know, offering for the wrong properties. And I'm not sure like contractually how easy or tough it is to kind of get out of these things once you're in it. You know, how do you go and vet these workers where you trust them that much that they're making offers with your own capital that you're not directly overseeing the the whole process? Yeah. And it, some of them were kind of nervous about doing that. And they were kind of nervous about the about the numbers. And it's like, you, you, you can't mess up because... This is not like a, a actual purchase and sale agreement where they're there by. It is just an offer. It is just, hey, let me go figure out your. I mean, we would pull these these information off of Zillow. We look at the pictures, make an estimate on the repairs based on the quality of the pictures. And a lot of these places, we knew they were in pretty good shape, so we could kind of guess guesstimate the the repair numbers within a reasonable number. And we just run formulas, and we were just running making. I would consider fairly low offers, but they were also fair offers based on how we in real estate investors buy things. And, and what's crazy is that people say the Zillow's estimate, it's terrible. Of course it is. It's terrible. That's what we use anyway. We take the Zillow's estimate. We run our formula against it. And we give our 70% discount minus repairs, make an offer. And so a $100,000 house, we're typically making an offer about $50,000. And we would just do that 50 times or 40 times a week. At one point when I was doing this with VAs and I had no actual employees. With that big of a discount and factoring in repairs, what's the success rate? If you're throwing 40, because I know you said that's the metric. So I'm assuming you probably have a good idea of about how many times you hit that bullseye. At that quality of lead, you're probably lucky to get one deal out of 40 offers. That's still pretty solid at that kind of discount, though. Right, right. And so this is in my market, which is a you know relatively low cost market. This is not in you know, New York or Miami or LA or something. So those numbers may change per market. But in the, the formula... For cash flowing property works somewhere like you can pretty much throw a dart at the Midwest and the Southeast and hit a major metro area. And these numbers work within reason. You can throw out Nashville, you can throw out Minneapolis, throw out Dallas, Atlanta. Otherwise, the other tier two markets that have a population of 100,000 or more, these numbers work and you can just do it over and over again. I'm curious. I know you're super open with all your stuff, Paul. Is when is this backfired? When have you gone in, maybe didn't do the due diligence, and <laughs> then all of a sudden it's $50,000 worth of repairs when the VA maybe thought it would be ten? We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis at my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash show, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash show to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash show. Now back to the show. It happens all the time, but that's not, that's part of the process. So one of the process is you make an offer. Well, then you're going to spend time and do your due diligence on the property. That's a lot of things what people scare is the offer is just an offer. 
it is not even a purchase and sell agreement. It is just a, I am willing to make this offer. It's written, but it's a letter of intent. I intend to buy it at this deal subject to inspection. So I go and do an inspection and sometimes I find out, oh, this is way worse than I thought. And I go back and I, and the, and the way we structure that is, oh, Mr. Seller, look what we just, look what just happened. We just found that you have termites in this place, or we found that there's, uh, uh, this, the place needs a lot of work. Were you aware that you have black mold? Now, how are you going to solve that? What can we do about this? And it's a true intent of this is a problem. How can we help you solve the problem? It's an offer to help. Now, our price is going to change based on the new information that we have, but we just take the new information and we adjust our offer based on that. Does it always work? No way. They're like, oh, I, I can't. <laughs> Sometimes they're upside down. They owe fake numbers. They owe 50 grand in, 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 in their mortgage. And we dropped our offer from 50 to 30 because of something we found. It doesn't work for me anymore. You know what? We part as friends and we move on. It's no, no, no big deal because we, I haven't promised anything on paper and I haven't promised to do anything other than I'm going to take a deeper look at your property. And just because I've actually actively going through my first home purchase situation, I'm learning all these new terms, even though we've had so many real estate people on the show, I'm sure Cody can attest, like when you actually do a deal yourself, you learn so much more. And so when you're going through that and you're making the statements like, you know, it's not like a contractual agreement. You don't have to buy the house. Absolutely true. But I'm curious. So does that mean you're putting down no option money? And maybe you can talk about what option money is to the listeners who who don't know. So what you're talking about is the earnest money deposit. And an earnest money deposit is just simply something that holds the property in the event that you don't follow through with it. In most residential transactions, uh, if you do put earnest money down, Typically, it's pretty easy to get your earnest money back. It's usually somewhere between $500 and $1,000. In many states, including Arkansas, where I do most of my transactions, in residential transactions, the use of earnest money has become kind of a non-issue because it's so easy to get your money back that it doesn't mean anything anymore. Whereas there are some states that require you to have earnest money deposits. Like in Michigan, I think they require it. So sometimes people will just put $1 down (laughs) just because they do. So earnest money can make a difference. If you're really in, like in this market, it's much more competitive. You could potentially use your earnest money as a indicator of how serious you are. This is a hundred thousand dollar property. I'm going to buy a pie for 80. I'm going to put down a $40,000 earnest money deposit. Even though I know I'm very confident I can get it back. I'm putting the earnest money deposit down to just indicate to you how serious I am. So I love this strategy that you use with Zillow. I mean, it's just like so smart. I feel like so nobody's doing that type of stuff. If you go to most real estate investors and say, yeah, I source most of my deals on Zillow, they're going to be like, what are you talking about? Like, you should be knocking on doors of houses with long grass. You should be calling up people. You should be looking at foreclosures. Is Zillow the sole place that you source these properties with the system that you've built? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> so Zillow is a, is a place I like. Zillow or property management websites or Facebook marketplace these are free places where people are saying, I have a property for rent or I have a property for sale. And it's much easier to learn how to talk to somebody on the phone about their property when the seller or the owner of the property has already put an ad out. So this is by no means the sole place that I get all my deals. I do all the, all the things you're talking about, about, you know, the very aggressive marketing and doing the, you know, fine, you know, cultivating these lists and stacking them, the motivation and skip tracing them and trying to f- track down who owns a property and send them a yellow letter. I do all that stuff too, but that stuff can be expensive. What's not expensive is you or hiring a very inexpensive VA scraping free lists from Zillow or 
Facebook marketplace or you know maybe Craigslist, but it's kind of scammy or property management websites and just get the experience under your belt of calling somebody and say, hey, I'm looking to buy a property. Would you be interested in selling? That is kind of what we do. And that, I think so many people are so afraid to do that because it's nerve wracking. Well, it's much easier to do that when someone's already put their property up for sale. Now, the conversion rate on these free leads are are low. The conversion rates of these highly cultivated uh, marking lists that we that we do as, as we buy houses people the conversion rate's much higher, but we have to pay big bucks to go and track those people. Yeah. I mean, this is honestly reminding me very much of like our, you know, in, in the business I work for, the our straight sales guys, they're measured on pipeline. And so they want to have like eight times the amount of leads as they actually need to book business. And so that's, like you said, it's, it's the main metric that they're searching. I'm curious kind of what kind of scale we're talking about here. So if you've got one VA doing 40 offers a day, how many VAs? Oh, a, like week, how, a week. Oh, a week. Sorry. So like how many offers are we talking about a week at this point? So at my point right now, I am talking to, or my team, I'm not talking to anybody. My team is talking to somewhere in the order of, I don't know, three or 400 people a day. <laughs> we're just saying. Wow. And this is over a couple of markets, but we're like, hey, would you be interested in selling your house? Oh, I saw that you have an advertisement on there. Would you be? Uh, I see your properties for rent. So, I mean, we're, I mean, it, it is, there is a program out there that's referred to talk to people. He calls it TTP, you know, talk to people. And that's the business we're in. We're in sales and you're in the business to talk to people. So you want to get on the phone and talk to somebody who has a property for sale. And it's, and I have, I think now five VAs that do nothing but talk to people and they're just qualifying leads. They may be people that come to us. We may be people that we've sent letters to, or they may be people that have come to our website and we just find out who they are and we, like, we reach out to them. So anybody who has in any way expressed an interest that they have a property that they might want to sell or rent, we're calling them to see if they will sell the property to us. And where are you sourcing these VAs? Because I'm just thinking in my head, running some numbers, how expensive this could potentially be if you've got five people on a 40 hour work week. I spend about a thousand dollars a week in in just people making calls to talk to people about their about their stuff. So so it can add up for sure. But I spend way more money on the the skip tracing. I spend way more money on the other kind of the access to the marking list to get them to call in the first place, right? So that's that's the the uplift here is the the VAs that are I'm paying six dollars an hour from the Philippines, that is not my biggest expense. It is all the tools and all the systems it takes for me to get someone to call in the first place. So I think everybody out there can get their head wrapped around, you know, the Zillow idea, although it's a great idea, don't get me wrong. But when you're saying terms that maybe not everyone listening is familiar with, like skip tracing or some of these other tactics, I just don't know if you can kind of dig into that a little bit. Sure. So you can just categorize leads into a few different deals and just generically think about what we're trying to do. My business is to find somebody who needs to sell a house. They don't want to sell a house. They need to sell a house. I'm in a business of finding somebody who would rather sell their house quickly and then get the most they want for the property. So we ask that question almost immediately. Is this a situation where you want the highest and best or you want a quick and easy transaction? If they want the highest and best, we refer them to a realtor and, and wish them the best. We're not their, their buyer. If they want a quick and easy transaction, which is only about three or five percent of the of the service market at any given time, so we're trying to find the needle in the haystack. When we do find these people, and why we spend so much time and money doing it, when we do find these people, what we're doing is we're figuring out like how we can solve their problem. So how do we get there? How do we find these people? 
there are kind of basically like three categories. You can get cheap and easy leads, which is the, the Zillow strategy, or you can do the on-market, which is the MLS, which is very competitive right now and really hard to find, but there's still auctions. There's still foreclosure to get, or you can go and find the really expensive leads that you can get to very quickly by spending some money. And this is what you're talking about when I'm talking about finding lists. Who has vacant property in your market? Who just went through an eviction in your market? Who just went through a tax lien sale and it, they are, are their taxes are behind? Who just went through divorce? And we pull these lists and we stack it against each other and we figure out when somebody has two or three of those things at the same time, the chances of them being likely to sell quickly and at a discount is very high because they have a problem. And their house, getting the most they can get for their property is not their priority. They want out. And it's a it's a value proposition. Quick and easy is more important to them than getting a foreclosure on, on, their, on their record or having a, an inherited property they have no idea how to deal with. And so who is curating these lists? My, my leads manager. Yeah, <laughs> and I have a marketing manager. Yeah. I mean, when I first started, it was me. But then I learned how to do it. And then you delegate it out. And you get, and we have marketing meetings. Uh, and I had one just a few hours ago with my, my chief of staff. Hey, what, what are we doing on marketing? Like we, we need to revamp our marketing plan. What's working six months ago may not be working now. And we're constantly adjusting to what the market is giving us. And so we, we, we will read the market. We do all these markets. We spend money. We run these experiments. Oh, okay. So right now the eviction list isn't working because they can't do evictions. No one's worried about evictions. <laughs> They're worried about having some other problem, which maybe they have a vacant house that they can't fill because of some kind of COVID concern. So these are the kind of adjustments that we're constantly making in these lists and figuring out who is the most likely to be willing to sell is the magic in the business that we do. So you're talking about these lists and I have to imagine there's not like an, an eviction.com. I don't know if this is like public records or how are you getting all these different things? It's a combination of a lot of different things. So some things are very public, like tax liens, public knowledge, like if, or, or uh, divorces, public knowledge, foreclosures, public knowledge. What isn't public knowledge is, is a property vacant or not? So we can get some of that from the postal service, but we have to kind of like back into it. And so there's a lot of services that take care of this for us. There's a lot of what I call the pick and access type services that give us the ability to go do our work versus us having to kind of dig the trench ourselves. And they curate these lists and they, they, for a fee, they give them to us saying, Hey, if you're in this market, here's our curated list of like highly motivated sellers. And I pay a premium to do that. <laughs> a list like that. I have no idea what that costs when you're spending a thousand bucks a week on VAs and you're saying you spend way more on these lists. Like the postal service is sending you these lists for $5,000 a week. No, no, it, it varies. No, the postal service is, is pretty cheap. Most of these are a software as a service type type deal where you pay $97 or $200 for uh, access to a tool that does a lot more things probably than just data, but they also have access to data. So they'll give you, uh, you'll, you'll be able to do like property analysis and you'll then be able to also pull a list of their curated vacant lists for your area. And then some people just go and like find their own list because the, the hardest list to find is the best list that you want because that's other, other people can't have, haven't found it yet. Like in some markets, probate is really kind of hard to, a probate is when someone inherits a property. And it's oftentimes the property is vacant, somebody's passed, and the property is just in disrepair. Very common. One of the best deal sources. But it can be kind of tricky because every county in the country is different. 
on, on how they, so you have to learn each county's process and how to get that data. And depending on where you are, that can be publicly available and easy or in other in like remote counties tends to be really difficult, but you might be able to find a real gem in there. So you've obviously built a ton of knowledge yourself and you've built a great team. I know you talk about how you love to build teams. I'm just wondering if you if you are or thinking about not only expanding your team, but actually building like additional versions of yourself, basically like franchises, you know, that you could kind of give somebody the tools, give them everything they need and you get like a cut of that, but it's not really your team. It's like they need to hire their own people. They need to do their own thing. Yeah. I'm actively doing that right now. I'm doing deals in Ohio. I've done deals in Mississippi. I, I think I've done deals now in seven States. And when I, I mean, but my fundamental market and everything I do is in Little Rock, Arkansas. It's what I know. It's where I am. It's where I have a, a network. But I'm getting to the point to where I probably can't get that much more market share in this in this market. I, I've kind of hit a diminishing returns for the you know the additional ten thousand dollars of spend that I might I might want to do. I'm not going to get that much more return anymore. So now I'm like, okay, well, where is there another market where there's an opportunity where maybe somebody who was established has decided to move on and there's not a big player there anymore, or somebody who is in a market like one of my employees. Um, she lives in. Omaha, Nebraska. And she's interested. She's, she's following. She's doing all the marketing for me right now. She's following this. And she says, well, I, I want in this. And so I say, well, I, I'm not picky. Like you find deals, we'll figure out a way, a way to make it work. So what I do is I, I joint venture with a lot of people. People find a deal. They want access to money. And then what I do is I come in and say, well, I can either partner with you or if you want to like do this and be the sales guy, then I can put some money into your market and we'll just joint venture in you know, Omaha, Nebraska, Louisville, Kentucky, Tulsa, Oklahoma, wh- wherever they are. Right. And, and these are places that I could go into and start learning the market, develop a network and expand what I'm doing. But it's not really a franchise like you're saying, because it is kind of hard. There are franchises in this business, but it, it is a tough business to franchise because there are local things in a market that you just have to know to make it work. One of the biggest hurdles, I think, when I talk to people from all parts of the country is that their market isn't the best to invest in. And you can hear this on you know, the West Coast, the East Coast. But Paul, you're investing all over and it seems like you're identifying these markets with big opportunities. And I want to lean on the fact that you're an analytical guy. What are some of these metrics or what are some of these things that you're considering and looking at when you decide to you know, go into Ohio, for example? Yeah. So the opportunity right now, I think, is in what are considered secondary, maybe even tertiary markets. So right now, the major NFL cities or the coastal cities, it, the, the price points just don't make sense for holding property for the long term for cash flow. You can flip, you, you can uh, you know do the HGTV type, type play if you want to, but that's not, I mean, I do a fair amount of that, but that's not my angle. My angle is to hold property for the long term and to sell to people who have want to hold property for the long term. And so w- what I do is I look for an addressable market that has a growing population over time has existing institutional buyers. And what I mean by that are these big turnkey buyers. So there are lots of big, big money. Some of it's from uh, overseas, some of it's native but or domestic, but it is there are like crazy amounts of money being poured into rental stock in the US. And I want to find deals and sell those deals to those people. That is the a marketing strategy that is an angle. So where are they? That's that's one thing. They've done the research already. Like why do the research that Starbucks does? Just go follow what Starbucks has done, right? So you know, like if if your business is feed Starbucks, just go figure out what Starbucks is doing. That's kind of what, what we're doing. But we also want to find a a market. If you want to hold property for the long term, 
you want to find a market that has a fairly diverse employment sector. You don't want everything based on one employment, like you know, like Detroit's a kind of a classic example of this. Um, that's changing, but you know, historically, it's the automotive industry, and when it doesn't do well, the Detroit does very very bad. So you want to avoid those situations if you can, uh, like military bases are another thing you want to be careful of. And then you just want this price to rent ratio to make sense. So this idea of, can I find viable housing stock that is going to transact at 1% of the sales price? So, so if, if a property rents for a thousand dollars, then it would sell for a hundred thousand dollars. That is the criteria for most investors to consider that a viable deal or not. If it's, Less than that, then it doesn't make sense. If it's higher than that, the better the deal becomes. So like a 2% deal is a property that's you can buy for $50,000, but rents for $1,000. And those do exist, but those tend to be in the really low income areas that tend to have higher risk, but there's a lot of cash flow if you know how to manage them. So you're talking about those cash flow. You're talking about tons of deals. You don't strike me as the flashiest person, Paul. Like when we've met you, like I'm just kind of thinking through this and it's always like, what's the motivation? Like, what is all this money for? What are you going to spend it on? Good, good question. So my fundamental purpose in life I have recently discovered has, has been to create transformation in people. I've spent a lot of time, if you've ever read The Alchemist, we're talking about Cody this yesterday in our, in our conversation, they have this concept of the personal legend. Like, what is your purpose? Like, well, what are you really trying to do? And I've really been kind of drive to that. And I, I, I thought maybe it was building and teaching, but I've realized that I want to connect with people on a human level and I want to make a transformation in their lives. And that's why now I have created a community of people who are asking me these kind of questions. And I was like, I want to do business with you. I want to help people who don't have the helping hand that I had and said, this is how you can build a business. And my business is basically created around the gravitational force of I am going to make transformation in people's lives. I'm going to help them elevate themselves so that they can fulfill their own purpose and they're not having to work just because they need to pay their bills. That's what I want people to avoid. I want people to find their, their, their purpose and real estate might be their purpose, but more than likely real estate is just their vehicle to get them to the place where they can. And you've helped investors all over the world. I think I read on your website, like California, New Zealand, we just talked about a bunch of other states, like you're not shying away from real estate deals. When you are helping people with these transformations, or at least helping them think of real estate as like a tool through this lens, I know, obviously, it depends on the market and every market's different. Um, but I'd just love to hear some of these little nuggets of wisdom that you're sharing with some of these mentees, some of these people in your community to, you know, plant that seed and get them started. So the idea behind all this is, I just want to connect with people and figure out where their opportunity is. Real estate is not necessarily the answer. It is just the answer that I understand. There are a lot of vehicles to creating personal financial independence, and there's a lot of vehicle to vehicles to creating the life that you want to lead. And kind of the idea that I characterize it as is like lead your ideal life, design your life the way you want it to. And I've just found that uh, real estate has been the most accessible vehicle for me. And it's a way to just kind of dip your toes into what it makes sense. There's a lot of avenues to do in real estate, right? And really, really, I'm a business real estate entrepreneur. And this is just my way of helping other people find their purpose. And I have kind of built this community because I can't help but like, uh, this is what I do. I just can't help but share. And 
And I don't care where that is. I feel like they have an opportunity to transform them li- their lives if they just figure out how to break the channel where they don't know how to not work just because. Like that that's in the 21st century, why are we doing that? Like, like <laughs> the, the, the world is transforming in a way that we can now adjust to. You know, I know some of the numbers you're throwing out, depending on what market people are in, they could be thinking, what in the world are you talking about? A $50,000 house. <laughs> but I actually, you know, there was a house down the street from my mom's. It was, it was a little small, like 750 square foot kind of place that, you know, didn't have a central AC. It was windy units, but it was, it was a nice, it was a cute little place with a little deck. And it sold for like, I think they were like $35,000 for it. And I know for a fact it could have rented for $500 a month. And I was just kicking myself for not buying it. For those people listening out there, if you're hearing these numbers, you're in a city like I am in Austin or, you know, some of these other cities, it can sound crazy, but there there definitely are these cities out there that have these type of properties. They do exist. And it, it's it kind of, it's all relative. Uh, so long as you're staying within this price to earning ratio. And if it's something that's of interest to you, then there's a lot of resources out there that kind of explain to you what the 1% rule is and how you can invest long distance that really scares a lot of people is like, I live in California, I live in Austin and I'm, I'm going to invest in Mississippi. Like, what are you talking about? Well, that's not as scary as it used to be because of the advent of some of the technology. Like you can do video walkthroughs and you can hire people and vet people through means that weren't available just 20 years ago. And I mean, I, you mentioned Cody, like there's people, I've worked with people from, you know, from Israel to Australia to, I mean, uh, to Japan, and they are looking for safe haven for their capital. They're looking for opportunity because what we have in the U.S. and even people in the U.S. don't realize is we have a huge country and we have a huge amount of housing and is one of the most stable, reliable places you can place your money and get a a dividend, a, a cash flow on it with the potential of appreciation. You know, you don't always buy for appreciation, but you, you that's kind of the icing on top. You, you know, if you're first getting started, you're buying for cash flow and not to mention there's all these tax advantages to it. But the fundamental reason is to buy a buy a piece of property that you believe will over time increase in value or at least maintain itself against the, the value of the dollar and just find a system that works for you, property management or you do it yourself, that pays you a dividend that creates cash flow. You get enough of those and that replaces your day job. So I just want to push down one more hurdle because you mentioned the long distance thing and the 1% rule are just two huge mental barriers that people who have never seen those numbers when it comes to real estate before. Let's let's just make up a scenario. Let's say you want to start investing in West Virginia, Paul, and you have no connections there right now. You have no properties there. I don't know if that's true. Mm-hmm. I don't. But, okay, perfect. So you can answer this honestly, how you kind of go about it. How do you go and vet these contractors, these people you mentioned that most of these places are going to need repairs. You use that in your offer discounting. You know, that's a scary thing to do from thousands of miles away to be like, yeah, you're a good electrician from this video call. Yeah, no kidding. So w- the most important aspect of investing in real estate is not the real estate itself. And it's not even the location. Uh, location is super important. You you, you want to be the right place. But it's the when you're investing for a long way away, it's the team that you have. It's the local boots on the ground. You have to have people that you trust. So I would rather choose a potentially not so sexy market in West Virginia versus maybe Dallas, Texas, where I live closer and I have a lot more, I could get to much easier, but I happen to not know anybody. But if I know somebody in West Virginia, that's why when Justin, you asked the question, like these other people who know these markets who might want to do something, 
I want the local person on the ground that can be trained as a salesperson and has an existing network. So you want to invest in places where you have, if at all possible, where you have some sort of network already. Someplace you went to college, somebody in your family used to live there. So you can start developing it. But if I just was dropped into West Virginia, didn't know anything about it, and you put me in a city that I had to invest there and I had to make it work, then I would develop develop that network first and I would go to those local meetups if I was local or if I was virtual like I am in the situation. I would be on every Facebook group you can find about West Virginia real estate. And I would get on calls and I would get to know people and I would ask for referrals and just build the spider web of referrals to make your network. I know a guy in New Zealand named Sadar. If you look him up on bigger pockets or in on Facebook, then you don't know who he is. And if you get to know him, he's making a phone call while it's 11 o'clock at night for him, for him, he's making a phone call to you. And he's doing that three or four times a day to someone in the U S all the time building his network. And so you have to give people little tests. So like, let's talk, let's have an interview. If you're late, it's a bad sign. So you're always testing people to figure out if they're actually doing something that is in your best interest and they're like kind of responsible. And then you get in and you give them like, Hey, like if it's a contractor, you have to, here's my paperwork. Like I'm going to give you as a $10,000 statement of work and you can't write it down for me. That's a big thing for contractors. Like have them write down what they do. Most of them won't write down bad, bad indication, like write (laughs) down what you commit to. And that's like test number one. There's like three or four tests like this, that you will run a contractor or an agent or a property manager through to make sure that they're going to actually fulfill what they're going to do. Because once you find the right one, it can really change your business and make it viable. Well, I hope we've got the people in West Virginia pumped to get into (laughs) real estate. I think uh, it's got to be the next hot market. If you've never uh, watch the movie The Wonderful World of Whites. Uh, you need to you need to watch that movie. It's a great movie about some West Virginians. But anyways, Paul, loved having you on the show. We learned so much from you. I remember learning so much from you in person in Arkansas around like the 1031 exchange I did and all these things. So I appreciate you just always being out there teaching, coming on the show today and sharing so much knowledge. But you have so much knowledge, more than we could cover in this episode. Where's the best place for listeners to kind of come out there and check you out? So the probably the best place to find me is on my website, pauldavidthompson.com. And if you find me out there, then you can probably find me on Facebook or Instagram under the same name, pauldavidthompson.com. Awesome, man. Well, again, just want to extend thanks. We're definitely going to have to do some future episodes if we want to dig into real estate a little bit more, because I know you could probably talk for hours about different styles of real estate, but just want to thank you again for your time and sharing all this awesome knowledge with us. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thebuyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Buy Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thebuyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening. Hey, real quick before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available. The very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.